pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning on this most glorious day. We pray, Father, send the Holy Spirit now. Send the Holy Spirit into our midst. You are here. We pray that you would open our minds to the Scriptures, that you would fill my words with your anointing and power, that you might lead us to the risen Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. In 490 B.C., a crucial battle occurred between the Greeks and the Persians in a place called Marathon. The battle raged for hours. It was, in many ways, an absolute fight to the finish. Eventually, the inferiorly uh, outfitted and numerically few Greeks managed Well, they managed a tremendous tactical win. But they had a problem because very soon the Senate, which was meeting in Athens, was going to take a vote. And because the Senate anticipated that their troops would be defeated, they were going to ratify a treaty of appeasement with the Persians. And so in desperation, the Greek general sent a runner, a young man in full battle gear, to go the 26 miles to Athens to tell the news. It's what we now call a marathon. He was totally spent. He ran in his full battle gear when he arrived, exhausted. He literally ran himself to death. And in his exhaustion, he was able to utter only one word to the Athenians. Victory. Victory. As great as that battle was, as great as that victory was, we celebrate a far greater victory today. We celebrate the victory of all victories, the victory of our God, the victory that vanquishes not merely a human army, but every foe there could ever be. Victory over death, victory over fear, victory over shame, victory over sin's power, to control us, victory over Satan, victory over hell, victory over sickness and loneliness and addictions and habits and compulsions, victory because of the death of Jesus Christ and victory because he was raised from the dead. But y'all, that morning, those women went to the tomb, they were not expecting to find victory. The text in Luke chapter 24, our gospel, verse 1 says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They went to the tomb with embalming spices because they expected to find Jesus in the same condition they had last seen him on Friday, dead. That's what they expected. They had seen the horrific trauma he endured with their own eyes. They had seen his whipped and brutalized body. They had seen the crown of thorns rammed into his skull. They had seen his hands and his feet nailed into the cross. They had seen him hang in agony for hours, for hours. 
as creation itself reacted. The skies darkened, the ground shook, the creation reeled at the death of its creator. They heard the words of that man upon the cross, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? They had no idea that what was happening in that moment was that the sin of the world was literally being put upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. All of our wrongdoings, all of our sins transferred in some divine way to his body on the cross. They saw him agonize as he was cut off from the heavenly father whom he had known for all of eternity. They had seen it all. They had heard his voice. Scripture says the Lord laid the iniquity of us all upon him. They saw him literally broken by sin, separated from God. And that's what sin does. It breaks and it separates. It's like a bone that's been broken. It's like a a joint that has been separated. And yet in the midst of that sinful separation, in the midst of his body literally becoming sin, that's what the scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Like, what does that do to a physical body? I mean, you can see the ravages of sin in a person who lives a hard life. You can see the aging process. You can see the deterioration that goes on. You can see the way it damages one body dealing with one group of sin. What happens to one body dealing with the sin of the world? Does it crumple? Does it contort? He's disfigured in every kind of way. And yet in the brokenness of our sin, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They heard it with their ears. They saw it with their eyes. They staggered as he offered forgiveness and not hatred. And as he breathed his last, they heard him say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Even in death, I will trust you. And they saw him breathe his last. And they saw the spear go into his side. And they saw the blood and water fall to the ground as his heart is pierced. They saw him put in a tomb. They saw the stone rolled in place. They were not expecting anything but death. But then they got there and the stone was rolled away. And as they went into the tomb... They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4 of our text says, they were perplexed about this. Yeah, you think? (laughs) They were perplexed by this. They were dumbstruck. They were terrified. They were confused. They must have been saying to one another, what is going on here? Now this? Now can you sense the darkness of the morning? Can you sense the darkness of the tomb with just barely any light? Can you feel the darkness in their minds? Can you feel the darkness of their hearts? You know this darkness. 
We've all felt it in ways. We've all experienced it in our lives. Oh, we've known the darkness of sin, the darkness of sorrow, the darkness of shattered hopes and broken dreams, of our expectations not fulfilled. And in the midst of that darkness, they expected death. But what they experienced was the inbreaking of the very glory of God, the heavenly realm itself. The darkness flees as two men are suddenly there. They're just there. And they're in dazzling apparel. One version says their clothes gleam like lightning. Now that's something we know about around here, right? Think about how lightning startles you when it's there. And there are two men with clothes like lightning. Angels of God from the God of the angel army manifest. They move from the unseen realm. Friends, the unseen realm is all around us all the time. It's here now. It's all around us. We live in a reductionistic, naturalistic world. The worldview says that if you can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, hear it, then it isn't real. But you know that's not enough. You know that's not enough. Your heart is made for more than that. And suddenly they're there. Heaven itself is in their midst. The glory of God is shining around them. The realm of the unseen has become seen. And they hear the angels declare the words of victory. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. He has risen. Victory. Victory. The theologian Leslie Newbegin, in his book, Foolishness to the Greeks, said this, the resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of victory. It is not the reversal of a defeat. It is the proclamation of victory. It is a victory. The resurrection assures us that what Jesus accomplished upon the cross is effective. The cross and resurrection, they're not separate actions. They are bookends on the victory of God in this world. The resurrection declares Jesus to be the lion, to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what Revelation 5 calls him, the root of David who has triumphed. He has been victorious, but he triumphed because he is the Lamb of God who was slain, the Lamb of God whose blood purchased us for God. This is the triumph and victory of our God. The theological term for this is a word we don't use at all in our culture. It tells you how far removed we are from the realities of Scripture and the way God does things. The theological term for what happened on the cross is the word propitiation. In fact, why don't you all say that? That might have been the first time some of you ever said that word. And that's okay, but you can't say that anymore. Propitiation. In its essence, what the word propitiation means is that his death turned away God's wrath against sin. His death turned away God's wrath 
against sin. Now, Jesus spoke continually. If you read his words, he regularly talked about the fact that we all have a crisis coming our way. Every person has a crisis heading their way. He continually talked about a future judgment that every person would face. He said things like this, if you're angry, now listen, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you shall be in danger of the judgment. Now let's think about anger. Let's think about your anger for a minute. Not, not their anger, your anger. How often is it that you get angry just because you don't get your way? You get angry because somebody crosses you. They cut you off in traffic. They don't let you finish what you want to say. How often do you justify that anger because, well, it's their fault? No, no, no. Our anger will actually be what speaks a word against us in the judgment. You got any siblings in the house? You got any married couples in the house? We got any people who know other people <laughs> in the house? See, this is real life stuff. This is not far out there theology stuff. Yeah, I used a theological term, but we need to bring it home to where we live, real life. This is about your life and my life. Jesus said this, I tell you that for every idle, foolish, or harsh word you speak, you will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Think about it. Just think about your last week. Idle, harsh words, foolish words. The Bible tells us that our hearts overflow into our words. The Bible tells us that our mouths are like open graves. They spew death all the time. We praise God one minute and we tear people down the next. Now think about your last week, maybe your last year. How about the corpus of your experience with words? Anybody over 90 in here? You probably have a lot of words. We got anybody around five or eight in here? You have words too. The rest of you who are in between, you got a lot of words also. The good news is this. Jesus on the cross turned away God's wrath from you. He turned away God's wrath from you and from me, and he took it on himself. God himself, the judge, and that's what Acts chapter 10 tells us. Jesus is the Lord and the judge of the living and the dead. He took the judgment. You must understand, and this is where our culture in our sort of touchy-feely religion, in, in our therapeutic deism that we tend to like, we want God as a life coach, but we don't want the real God. In our culture, we have grown callous to the understanding of who the real God is. And so we say things like, you know, I don't like that God of wrath in the Old Testament, but I like the God of love in the New Testament. That's heresy. That's a theological word for that ain't right. <laughs> it's not two different gods. It's not two different stories. It is one story. It is one God. It is one Lord. From the beginning of the book to the end, from the beginning of history to the end, from eternity past to eternity future, it is one God. And he does not set his justice aside. He would not be just. He would cease to be God. He cannot set aside his justice. The cross was no compromise between God's wrath against sin and God's love for sinners. 
on the cross, both the wrath of God and the love of God were fully vindicated, fully demonstrated, perfectly expressed, totally fulfilled. Both wrath and love are demonstrated in that place. That was the Father's plan. This was the Son's willing sacrifice. He did not suffer because He had to. He suffered because He loved the Father and because He loved you. Because He loved you. Oh, the beauty of the cross. Oh, the wonders of the agony. Oh, the marvels of His suffering. Because He loved you. He bears that upon Himself. He has done everything to forgive and restore you, to mend the brokenness of sin, to take away the separation and the distance between your life and God's life. And the resurrection is God's proof. The resurrection is the victory. The resurrection is what it all hangs on. He has risen from the dead. Can I get an hallelujah? Hallelujah. All right, just want to be sure you're with me. Now, what do you do about this? Because we hear a lot of talk, but what do we do about it? We've got to be a people of, of, of integrity who don't just hear the words and then walk away from them, but we respond to the words. We hear the words and we respond. What must we do? We must respond in faith to who Jesus is. Now, let's unpack that a little. We've got to recognize something really important about this this Easter morning, the women and the apostles, well, they didn't really believe it at first. And that's good news for us because most of us start in the place of unbelief. So what happened? And, and what was the process that began to unfold? Because not only did they start in unbelief, but none of them actually encountered Jesus right off the bat. It didn't start there for any of them. Not that morning. First, listen, this is important. First, they heard the message. They heard the words about the resurrection. They heard that Jesus is alive, and they were told, now go and tell others. The women were told, go and tell the 11. Go and tell the apostles. And what did they do? Well, they didn't carefully craft their theology and make sure they had all their details straight. They didn't make sure that they understand all the precisions of things like propitiation. They just obeyed and did it. And as they did it, they began to show us a kingdom principle, the way that God's activity in the world works. That as they heard the message of resurrection and they moved out in action to tell other people, it created faith within them and it released faith in those who heard their word and then they encountered the resurrected Lord. That's an important sequence to understand. They heard the message. They responded to the message. They moved out in action to tell the message and Jesus showed up along the way. Is anybody getting this? See, we're often waiting, well, prove yourself to me and then I'll believe. And he says, no, you believe and step out and go and tell somebody about it and you're going to see me appear. You're going to encounter me along the way. You're going to know. 
You're going to know the realness of my heart to you. This is the way it works. And this is why so few Christians or church people experience the resurrected Lord. Because we're afraid to move out in action. We're afraid to open our mouths and declare the good news. He is alive. Victory. There you go. Well done. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, we also can read the Word of God. Thanks be to God, we live in an age where it's all written down for us. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and you confess with your mouth that He is Lord, that He is alive, then you will be saved. You'll have the salvation of God in your life, not just for later, but for now. Everybody say now. Today is the day of salvation, not after your body stops working. Today is the day of salvation, but it takes a response. A response to the gift, that's faith. Let me see if I can explain it. In the 1800s, there was a missionary by the name of John Patton. He was from Scotland. He traveled across the world to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. He went to take the gospel to the native peoples. It was a brutal place. It was a wicked place. It was a hostile and dangerous place because they were cannibals, okay? He was in danger all the time, but what he felt like God wanted him to do was to translate the gospel of John so that they could hear the word and respond. So they could eventually read the word and respond. Well, here's the problem. They didn't have any words in their language for faith, for trust, or for belief, which I think makes perfect sense. I mean, in a culture where you could be eaten, it's hard to trust the people around you, right? (laughs) I mean, I get it, right? They just didn't even have the word. And so he stumped. So one day, Patton's servant that he had hired, he'd kind of gotten connected to this guy, he came into Patton's hut, and Patton was seated in a chair, And Patton said to him, hey, what is this? And he sat back in his chair. Y'all sit back in your chair. Now pick your feet up off the ground. Even you back there. Just an act of faith. You don't have to hold him for long. He said, what is this? What is this? And the servant said, that's to lean your whole weight upon it. And that was the word he chose for faith. (laughs) Must be a good point. I should emphasize that. (laughs) That was the word he chose for faith, to let your whole weight be upon it, to let all of you rest upon it, all that you are resting upon it. Faith is leaning your whole weight upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not upon your goodness, not upon your morality, not upon your religion, not upon the fact that your wife has faith, or your mom had faith, or your brother's got faith. That your whole weight leans upon, rests upon Jesus upon all of who he is, but particularly upon his death and upon his 
resurrection. It's upon his resurrection. Let your whole weight rest upon that. Lean into him. When you hear and you respond in faith, he makes himself known to you. You're waiting for him to make himself known to you. Lean upon him with all your weight. And then he will make himself known to you. Because he's alive. He's not a martyr dead in the past. He is alive. The victory of God is alive. And what happens is he does an internal work in your heart. If the internal work has not begun, and you will know if the internal work has begun. If the God of the universe comes in and changes you, do you think you'd know that? Somebody, please. If you don't, then put your whole weight upon him. Here's the thing, we forget, we wander away, we get captivated by shiny things in this world. And so what happens for so many of us along the way is like, well, it worked for a while, but I think, you know, I'm gonna kind of try it on my own for a while. And what happens? Death, brokenness, separation, heartache, the world plays out. Well, come back. Come back and let your full weight rest upon him. Come back to the God who loves you. Come home to the one who called you and made you his own. He'll change you. And here's the beautiful thing. He brings life from your death. He takes shame away. Anybody want shame away? Yeah, he can do that. He's big enough to deal with your addictions. He can remove the guilt you feel over the things that you have done. And that guilt is an indicator. There's some things that you're not letting him carry. Let him take it. He will bring life from this death. Learn to hear his voice, the most important thing in this life. And if there's any parents in here, Teach your children how to hear God's voice. Well, that means you've got to first rest your full weight upon Jesus and then teach them how to do that. Learn to hear his voice. Learn to walk with him. Learn to live from his love and, and not because you have to. This is the victory of God and it affects everything. Today, we celebrate the victory of faith. Just for you, if you were the only person in this room, the only one, the only one, that's the magnitude of his love for you. Pick up your feet. Rest. Look at y'all. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, on this day, we praise you and thank you. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Would you, Lord, break in? As we hear this word, would you give us the gift that we might receive it and respond? And Lord, today, would you let us in faith, tell somebody 
that faith might be released in them, that you are alive, that we get to be with you forever. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.